This episode is brought to you by our partners at Workplace Law. Welcome to the Female Athlete Project, Season 2. My name is Chloe Dalton. I'm an Olympic gold medalist in Rugby Sevens and I'm now playing for the GWS Giants in the AFLW. I started TFAP to share the stories of incredible female athletes and to address the gender inequalities that exist within the sports media space. We want to change that story and we're all about making news and highlights of women's sport easily accessible across our platforms. Our hope is that more female athletes will become household names and in turn enable the next generation of young kids to pick up a ball, racket, bat, board, whatever they want to pick. Melissa Tapper made history in 2016 as the first Australian athlete to have competed at both the Olympic and Paralympic Games. As a youngster, Millie fell in love with the game of table tennis and, as you'll hear, had an incredible local community pushing her to achieve some big dreams. In 2018, she also became the first Australian to achieve Commonwealth Games glory in table tennis. This chat with Millie was following her competing in both the Olympics and Paralympics in Tokyo 2020, and I absolutely loved hearing about her stubbornness, her drive, and her desire to work every single day at her craft, often taking herself to the point of feeling like she didn't possibly have any more left in her. This was a really special chat. I hope you enjoy it. Millie Tapper, welcome to the Female Athlete Project. Thank you very much for having me. (laughs) You're getting prepped for your day 12 COVID swab in hotel quarantine. How has that experience been for you so far? Yeah, I think um, I'm pretty lucky with it. Yeah, um, day 12 and I still feel quite good. And I think now that I'm on the home stretch and the last test to go, then yeah, I'm just excited to get out in some fresh air, to be honest. Have you had any have you had any windows? Do you get any fresh air or you're all locked up? Yeah, I'm in a real nice little shoebox, but um I can't complain though, because the windows are nice floor to ceiling windows. So I get a very nice full view out into the Melbourne city. But um nah, that, that, it's actually been surprisingly very good. Um, but yeah, just I am missing fresh air. <laughs> Yes. Um, we've seen a few Olympians and Paralympians put room numbers up and get deliveries. Have you gone down that route of, of trying to get deliveries from some fan mail? <laughs> no. Uh, well, I mean, my, my friends and family have sent me uh, a few things, but even just with those few, it's it's been too much, to be honest. I even had <laughs> one of my girlfriends last night at about, uh, it was like half past seven at night, six massive donuts arrived at my door. <laughs> I had no idea who they were from and I was sitting there for about half an hour trying to scratch my head being like, like who knows like that I'm here and, and I knew it had to be like a friend or family, but mm. yeah, she about 20 minutes later she messaged me and said, oh, has something arrived? And I was like, oh, you're the culprit for this. I was like, nice. <laughs> six donuts, come on, how am I going to eat six donuts? <laughs> how, how many have you downed so far? Oh, I've got half of one. Um, but oh, yeah, gosh, I'm just eating a full donut yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's seriously like the amount of food that's sitting in here. I, yeah, it's so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Every episode we usually kick off by going back to um, your childhood. So I'd love to know what you were like as a little kid. Um, my mum would definitely be a good one to answer this, though, I reckon, but she probably would have said I was pretty stubborn, um, mm-hmm. very strong, strong-minded with what I was doing. I think I packed um packed up a bag a couple of times and stood out in the front pavement of the house said that I was leaving because I, I wasn't too impressed with things. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I think um, g- given that I, I was born with a disability, I think um, growing up I learnt that uh, anything that I couldn't do at any point in time just meant that I had to go home and, and practice a lot and maybe had to apply a bit more time and energy into finding solutions to things. But that ended up, I think, being a little bit of a superpower for me in, in sport and in life as well. So, um, yeah, thankfully to my incredible parents, I've, I feel like I've grown up very happy and, and a good human. <laughs> and what about your siblings? How did that, um, I guess, shape who you've become as a person and a bit of your sporting experience too. 
Yeah, so I've got an older brother and an older sister and they've definitely um, treated me just like any other sibling. So <laughs> I think I, I, I was still made by them to do the dishes of an evening or whether it was my job to dry them or whether it was on the weekend I had the cleaning duties. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I never got any special special treatment from them. Um, but they, they, they've been a massive part in terms of, you know, helping me grow up. I moved out of home just before I turned 15 and actually moved in with my older sister in Melbourne so I could keep going to school and training. So uh, at that point she was only 22. So I think she Mm -hmm. did a fantastic job pretty much mothering me through my teenage years. But I definitely like to claim that that's why she's such a good mother now because, I mean, she had to put up with me and um, get me through high school. So, uh, yeah, no, I'm very lucky. I'm interested in this dynamic between you and your sister moving in as a 15-year-old, which is some like interesting developmental years as a teenager. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like I I was going into year 10 at high school. Uh, so she, my sister basically was like cooking for me. Um, yeah, she was definitely just totally mothering me. Um, I think my, <laughs> I think my parents were incredibly trusting of her, which like she has always been the very grown up one out of the three of us anyway. But, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was, yeah, it was definitely very impressive how well she was able just to, um, yeah, look after me as a as a big sister, I think. And we travelled back home most weekends to see mum and dad, which was like a three and a half hour trip back. Wow. But yeah, she she definitely um yeah, taught me a lot though growing up. Cause even if I think about it like the simple things or like when I was learning to drive, like so before I even got my L's already when we were driving back to Hamilton, she'd always just be talking to me about what she was doing and in terms of driving and what she was looking out for. So it was really funny. I remember when I got my L's, I actually felt like I'd been driving for years just because of the way she'd taught me when, when she was driving. So it was little things like that. Yeah. That I thought, yeah, when I look back on, back on, uh, back on them that they were, yeah, very cool. And yeah, she's a pretty impressive big sister. Very cool. I'd love to hear the story about the very first time you played a game of table tennis. Uh, the very first time ever was our parents brought us a table for our holiday house in Port Ferry. Mm. And um, my again, my brother and sister were the main ones that were playing because any time that I got on, I, I mean, I was so young that I was really bad at it. And <laughs> for them, that wasn't very fun. So <laughs> they they didn't let me keep on playing. <laughs> so I, I just became a very good spectator watching mm-hmm. them. And then it wasn't until later on in primary school that I played table tennis offsite on a Friday lunchtime sport activity. And again, I was terrible at it, but at least I was allowed to play. They, mm-hmm. they let me play up there. <laughs> and I think it was, yeah, from, from that point on that I found out that I really enjoyed it and I think that's why I kept going back. And so what did that actually look like? Was that something that you just would regularly keep practicing even though, even though at the beginning you weren't very good? Yeah, so it was sort of more just uh, for fun. Uh, the local club had like a junior league so I would go just once a week. Um, I was like on a Tuesday evening and play their like little competition that they had and I guess – yeah, any time that you do more of something, the better you get at it. So it, that's where it began to grow and it went from one day a week to two to three and it was really, um, when I look back on it now, there were so many people from the local club that supported me and helped me just to improve. I mean, at that point there was no like likelihood of me going to go on to represent the country or anything but the the guys in particular that were involved in the club were just so helpful and saw that I was enjoying myself and being um you know young and a female in in a sport that didn't really have any at all in that point when I first signed up they definitely nurtured me and and helped me to improve and that that sometimes meant that they would come to my parents' house on a weekend where my my dad had set up a table in the shed so that I could still practice and 
whether it was after school going, one of them was available and would give me a hit and help me out. So, yeah, it's really um, it's something special as well when I think back to that sort of time that I wouldn't have been able to continue and I wouldn't have kept progressing if it, if it wasn't for the likes of having such a small country town get behind me as well. Yeah, that's really special. Do you remember the first time when you beat either one of your siblings? Uh, not not so much because one, once I started playing, it was sort of then all of a sudden that they didn't really – they didn't really play anymore. So. Oh, one of those ones. Yeah. 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 Smart, smart from them. But yeah. But my, my brother still likes to claim that, yeah, he was he was the reason that I improved. So yeah. I'll let him take that one. Yeah. Um, what did it look like from playing at the local club to kind of progressing your way up to, to playing more seriously? Yeah, so I – started off um yeah like once a week and then that um upped and upped and upped and then that was from about eight years old but then 11 12 years old was when I played my first state tournament so I headed to Ballarat and that was the yeah first time that I ever really played uh like a major sort of event outside of Hamilton for table tennis and I won the under 12 girl singles there I'd beaten a couple of like Victorian state representative girls to do it and that that was the moment I think that I really became hooked. I, I walked out of the stadium with the trophy and still to this day it's my favourite. That's and really cool. It was just how, yeah, it was just like that feeling of like, oh, you know, that was fun. I loved it. Mm. You know, I'm all right at it. Um, and I totally caught the bug for it and even just walking out with my parents and how proud of them, um, how proud of me they were and how much they enjoyed just spending the day inside a table tennis hall with me and watching was, was really nice. So it was definitely from that moment onwards though that, yeah, I was definitely veering more towards more table tennis. So it was in 2009, I think it was, that you were approached by Paralympics Australia about um, the opportunity to, to play there. Can you talk us through what happened at birth and how that has impacted your, your ability to play and what that means for your classification? Yeah. So when I was born, I was a very large baby. So I was 11 pound two, which is quite, quite a whopper. It's a big bump. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, is, it is very big. <laughs> uh, but like just to add to being so large, it was my mum's birthday as well when she ended up delivering me. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and the poor woman did it naturally as well. So I ended up getting it's stuck. Impressive. Oh yeah, it's absolutely impressive. Uh, definitely, <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I guess, um, yeah, from then to get me out, I was pulled by my right arm, and that tore the nerves in between my neck and shoulder. And uh, originally, it was sort of thought that it would just be okay, like you know, it just needs a little bit of time to heal, and it, it's fine. But four months old, my parents realised I still had no use of my right arm. It was basically just hanging by my side. So they took me to a, a surgeon or a specialist in Melbourne and they ended up explaining that I have a condition that's called brachial plexus. So, yeah, basically just the fancy words for saying that those nerves had been torn and at four months old I had an operation where they took the nerves from the back of my calf muscles, joined into the ones that were broken in my arm and um, gave me back a little bit of movement, I guess. So. Uh, in ter- in terms of my table tennis, I, I mean, just growing up in general, though, I had never been treated um, like I had a disability and I'd never looked at myself like I had a disability. So, yeah, I guess, and particularly in the teenage years, being approached to then play the Paralympics, I, I didn't really know much about the par- Paralympics either at that time. So mm. I was just very like, oh, I, I'm not really sure, but um yeah, thankfully, you know, Paralympics Australia has incredible people that um, are involved with them. So I I decided to give it a go and through that uh, I found that I was a class 10. So mm-hmm. that so table tennis has 11 classes 
to obviously try and group athletes that have a similar disability against one another. So I guess one, one to five are like wheelchair athletes. So one being um, uh, more disability than, than five and mm-hmm. six to 10 are the standing athletes. So I'm a class 10. And then 11 is for intellectual disabilities as well. So um, once I'd been classed, that meant that I um, would be grouped against similar girls with a similar type of disability. And my main exemption comes from service. So I can't do what's considered a legal serve. So I have mm-hmm. an exemption to help me serve. <laughs> okay. What did it, what was it like when you were kind of in those teenage years going from playing against able-bodied um, players to then being approached and, and looking at this idea of preparing for the Paralympics? Yeah, definitely. I think the teenage years were probably the hardest of it, I guess. I guess when you're a female growing up and you know that you're a little bit different to everyone else, but at the same time, I liked it, but also at, at times, you know, I would have one of those down days and I still remember one day just crying to mum being like, why me? This is not fair. But mm. I, I'm pretty sure that honestly lasted maybe five minutes because my mum just looked at me and said, Melissa, you can do anything you want to do. Stop crying. It doesn't, it just doesn't matter, you know, like, and I think that's what was so amazing about my, my family and friends as well. It was like, okay, you can have your little down moment, but at the same time, like, you know, you're perfectly capable of doing whatever you want. So (laughs) why why are you upset? And I think because of that, I was, um, yeah, really then more inclined to sort of give it a go and just see how, um, yeah, everything would pan out. But as, as a teenager, I think I was lucky that I had fantastic people around me to sort of continue, you know, pushing me through through everything and encouraging me to keep giving everything a go. And and with that I was comfortable to give everything a go, which mm. definitely definitely helped. But um yeah, the the Paralympics ended up opening I guess another side of me that I was more will like I was then very willing to embrace um, having a disability, whereas previously as as a teenager I was probably sort of just growing up with it and not fully, yeah, really embracing it. I had a chat on season one with Maddie D. Rosario and it was kind of about this idea where, say, with like female athletes and Paralympic athletes and, and Maddie put it so eloquently, this idea of, the importance of representation and and visibility in that space. And it's interesting to hear the way you describe the way you were growing up. You kind of didn't see it in that way. Was that move in in being able to represent Australia at the Paralympics, do you feel like you moved more into a space of, I guess, representing people with a disability? Yeah. Yeah. I guess it, it came along that way as well, but, but from, for me, I think it was just seeing that, you know, regardless whether it's every day or being an elite sports person, yeah, that like you can you can find a way to be out to be able to do things and and there's so many people on a day to day basis. Like everybody has a disability. It doesn't necessarily have to be physical but everyone has something that they believe at the end of the day that they can't do something or you know something about them isn't um you know perfect I mean what what even is that anyway Mm. so I think yeah for for me just um yeah being able just to show myself as well that I am capable of doing everything and and then in turn, if that ends up, you know, reflecting and helping someone else too, then then that, that was always just a bonus. But for me, it was definitely just seeing what I was definitely capable of doing. I'd love to play an audio clip for you. This is from the qualifiers for the Rio 2016 Olympics. Can she make history here? Yes, she can. Well done, Melissa Tapper. 
And look at that smile. She has done it. The first Australian athlete to make the Paralympics and the Olympic Games. Before we get into that, the emotion behind that moment, can we talk about the road leading up to that? Obviously, we've talked about Paralympics Australia um, approaching you, but you still had this goal of, of representing Australia at the Olympics. And was it, did you try and qualify 2004, 2008 and 2012? Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you talk us through those, was it almost 16 years to qualify for that moment? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically. Um, I think it was, it was more so, um, you know, one, once I found out that that table tennis was played at an Olympic games, then that really became a goal for me. And initially, obviously, uh, I didn't know anything about the Paralympics. So Olympics was always the goal, um, and the dream. So to start, you know, putting things into place to start achieving that. And that's where moving to Melbourne was part of, part of that step as well. Um, my coaches in Melbourne, working more with them and that starting to go through that whole qualification process and understanding it. Cause it's an absolute grueling event. And it's one of the only sort of times that you'll be put through those pressures and that, um, you know, that amount of matches through a short period of time, like quite a lot of demands on the body. And experiencing that as a 14-year-old was was really tough. Mm. And I remember the first time as well, like absolutely no, um, there was no way I was going to qualify. But still in my head, I was like, I could make an Olympic. So <laughs> being vulnerable and like pushing yourself out there into the into the competition at 14 I mean, I lost my first match and I think I was bit, like lucky to even win a few points <laughs> out of the whole match as well. But I, I was still just so shattered. Like I was like, oh, I just I just missed out on making an, an Olympics. And I think every time though I put myself into that position, I wanted it more again and again. Mm. And it, it was really hard for me after being a top junior. I mean, I, I was winning nationals just about every year. But then once I left under 18s, I was in the senior ranks and it, that became very tough because things were a lot more open. I, I wasn't winning so much. I found it harder to win and just making that jump was really hard. So I think the, the Paralympics really came at uh, a very good time for me because I was then competing internationally again against high level and just learning and putting myself again in another sort of situation that just helped me grow and I think because of that over the next few years that really helped as well they complemented one another um so then even though I now wanted to qualify for a Paralympics the Olympics was still in the back of my head as well as something that I've always dreamed of wanting to go to it was just really quite a bonus that I was um lucky enough to have people around me to encourage me to play Paralympics as well Mm. And yeah, so I think over those years of continuously trying to qualify and falling short and having that bit of heartbreak every time, um, you know, it's not an easy thing to then be like, all right, it's okay, we go again, another four years, we try again sort of mm. thing. So uh, I think with that in mind, though, um, yeah, it sort of drove me to continue to want to wanting to be better and and then the Paralympic side continued to help improve me in a lot of areas that I, I wasn't getting in the able-bodied. So for me, it ended up being the perfect um, mixture. I get so interested by this idea, right, like with this Olympic cycle and the Paralympic cycle with the four years. And like if I think back growing up as a kid, I idolised athletes like Anna Mears and Lauren Jackson who went to four Olympic Games and athletes like Louise Savage, who just had these such extensive careers and performed at such a high level for such a long period of time. What for you, like, did you come back after trying to qualify for those Olympics and then think like about that next four year cycle? Did you have moments where you're like, is this actually worth pushing for another four years for something that may not actually happen? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, 
that happens a lot. (laughs) I think that's just a a natural part of what comes. But I also think that given uh, the sort of childhood that I had when I wanted something and knowing that it just wasn't going to come straight away and it wasn't going to be easy, but if I did put the time in, I really did believe that eventually uh, I would be able to do something and whether that had been learning to tie my shoelaces or putting my hair up or shooting a netball, I I knew that I could do something as long as I was willing to try and find a solution for it. Mm. So I guess every time that those moments happened, I would have that period of, you know, it's like a crap feeling. Like, I mean, no one wants to feel like that. So why it's almost a bit of a sickness. Why, like, why do we keep putting ourselves <laughs> yeah, into yeah. into a position to 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 have that? So, um, but at the same time, as much as you don't like it, you love that struggle of trying to achieve it. And yeah, for me, that that was definitely something that that kept on driving me. And I I knew that eventually I would find. Yeah, I would find the way and I had the right people around me. I knew that I could stick to things. I was driven. Um, basically, I I really remember from London Paralympics to then qualifying for Rio, I, I felt like a racehorse with blinkers on because I from that time onwards I'd looked at everything that I knew I could work on and improve. So, you know, like whether it's nutrition, strength and conditioning, psych, uh, the actual on-table stuff that I was doing, everything coupled together. But I knew that over four years and if I was willing to do it every single day, that I, I knew that I will be very, very close to qualifying. And that was what happened. And I was just stoked that I was able to, um, regardless of – having a bad day i was able to look at a solution to get to get through it rather than just be looking at it as a negative and then staying on it and going down that path um i i definitely have learned though over the years that being a more solution based um approach type of person is a lot uh enjoyable oh, there's a lot more success that comes with it and requires less energy mm-hmm. <laughs> than than to be negative so um i think with all of those together um it just sort of made the whole process and the journey of qualifying so much more enjoyable now for a quick halftime break workplace law is a law firm focused on supporting and empowering female athletes to take control of their careers If you can't afford an agent or would like to manage your own career, Workplace Law would love to help you. They provide female athletes with guidance through the complexities of player contracts, negotiations and sponsorship agreements, personal brand building, mentoring with on and off field careers, crisis management and work with individuals to ensure they respond to incidents and media stories in an appropriate manner, and advice and representation in disciplinary hearings and tribunals. Find out more at www.workplacelaw.com.au. Just a quick note, this interview was recorded virtually while Millie was in hotel quarantine. We had a few internet issues for the final 10 minutes, so the audio is slightly impacted. There's a lot in that that I want to discuss, but I what really stood out to me was this idea of loving the struggle. And I think like... I even think about my training on those days where you have like whatever it might be, whether it's in the gym or for me, it might be like a really hard conditioning session. And I sometimes have these moments where I can't breathe and it's so hard and I don't feel like I can get through, but there's this like beautiful feeling of almost like, I feel like this is what my body was made to do. Like, is that, is that something that resonates with you? This like, when you're in that struggle, you're like, this is, this is what I love doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it, that even gives me like goosebumps just hearing you say something like like that as well. <laughs> I I really love pushing myself to the limit, I think. And I think that's when you know you've hit that point and then you push yourself just to go, whether it's an extra 10 seconds longer or, you know, two more reps. It's just knowing that you've reached you know, that point and you've pushed and then that's where the improvement comes. And, and then once you're done that, that feeling like 
it's, it's so addictive. Like the the whole mm-hmm. time and the whole moments through it all, you just like, I want it to end. But when it does finish, you're like, yeah, like I did this and, you know, I killed it and it was awesome. And now, you know, yeah, I, I live for that feeling at the end, knowing that you've just mm-hmm. pushed yourself to the best that you can. And even sometimes like just knowing though on the other end that the rest days is, is perfectly fine. That's good. But you're knowing that mm. you're having that because then the next day you're going, going to get to go again. And yeah, for me, I think, yeah, it's definitely that, that feeling of once you finish and knowing that you gave it everything that, yeah, I can't get enough of. <laughs> Yeah, it's addictive. (laughs) I also am interested behind this idea of your transition from junior to seniors and more, I guess, the mental side of it around being successful and winning games to then having to readjust to getting beaten. What were you like in that space, say, in matches that you were losing? Have you noticed a difference as you've grown in your self-talk and what you're saying to yourself in those moments when you were losing? Yeah, so so that that whole beginning period of coming out of juniors into seniors was really hard because um, I, I just remember juniors being amazing because regardless, I felt confident and I was I always managed to find a way to come through and win. So that like for me, that was like I felt untouchable through juniors. And then Mm. as I got into the seniors, even though as I began, I still had those thoughts, but the girls I were competing against had been, you know, professionals over in Europe playing league. Um, They had been to, you know, several Olympics and Commonwealth Games themselves. And that level was just another, it was another step up to what I had experienced. And even though, I, I knew I was capable and I was matching it with them. It was just those critical, important points that I just really couldn't quite get right. And then going into Paralympic events and then being put on an international stage consistently and against high-level competitors, again, who I was matched really well with, I began to learn at a quicker rate. I think how to switch myself on and get into the match and like start following processes to play my best table tennis. And through quite a period of time I spent overseas and then I went overseas to play league. So I was spending months at a time over there. So then when I came back home and was again back into senior competitions, there, there was a big shift and even though I'd constantly been playing against people that I was losing against, every time I turned up I tried to win another point more than the one before and I think, again, mm. it was that a very similar sort of pro- process as a kid when I wanted to do something. It just kept chipping away at it, kept trying to work at it and, again, um, yeah, once I started to see that the improvements were coming and the more I believed that I could do it, there was an extra point that was coming my way each set. And just seeing that little bit of improvement was all that I needed, I think, to really sort of spur me on. And even if it it still took, you know, a, a little period of time to secure the win, but once I got that first one, I think that was the big change for me to then know that I can compete in the senior levels and, you know, an Olympic Games or a Commonwealth Games isn't out of reach, which then, you know, just started a whole nother like domino effect of wanting to be better and pushing myself even more and finding more opportunities on areas to improve. So it, it was a hard transition initially. But it's sometimes all you need is that little bit of evidence of improvement or progress that will then be enough to keep motivating you to keep going. And yeah, that's what it was for me. It was that little that little bit of progress that I saw that then I was like, yeah, unstoppable for it. <laughs> I think that's a really powerful little thing because I think like if you think about 
people in all areas of life, right? This idea of kind of like imposter syndrome, almost where people are in these positions where they they don't necessarily believe that they belong there yet. But this idea that you just need a little bit of evidence, a little bit of improvement. How long did it take you to kind of go from the point where you weren't winning games to then get to a point, even if you weren't winning where you were like, okay, like I, I belong here. I know I'm eventually going to get to that point where I start winning games. Yeah. Yeah. So I reckon initially I went for about a two year sort of period of where it was like I was turning up, but just finding it hard and not really sure like how, how many more times I could keep doing that. Um, Mm. until, yeah, I reckon just over that sort of two year period, it was when I, I started seeing sets were coming to my, coming my way. So it was getting closer to winning those more important matches. And then, yeah, I reckon just around early twenties then was when I really started to believe that, yeah, this, this is going to be for me. Like I can do this. And it was just going to be that long sort of understanding of a goal that's going to come, but just got to take it one at a time and sometimes Mm -hmm. that that's hard but I think I'm a very goal orientated person though as well so even the long-term goal will be something that excites me but having the smaller ones definitely is what you know keeps keeps you motivated and coming back so yeah it was definitely early 20s I think that then I really began to think that I was um capable of doing it we heard in the audio clip earlier that you made history as the first Australian to compete at both an Olympics and a Paralympics in that same cycle. What was that like for you? Was that a, a big occasion or a big moment to, I guess, make history in that sense? Or was it for you just a bonus way for you to get to play more table tennis? <laughs> yeah, it was It was the, the whole history side um I mean, I th- I feel like down the track that'll mean a lot more to me. Maybe when I'm like a mm. grand grandma rocking my <laughs> grandkids to sleep or something, you know, <laughs> telling them heaps of stories. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but in in that very moment, it was it was more about just getting yeah exactly to play more table tennis at a, at the highest level, um, on the biggest stage that I could possibly play, and and that for me was just the biggest motivation to to be playing and try and trying to achieve it and the the most exciting thing for me is getting to put on the Australian colors and walk out onto a stage and compete so any opportunity that I get the chance to do that is just an absolute privilege so yeah again the the, the history side is um you know that I mean that's awesome but Getting getting to play on the on the biggest stage is is just the greatest thing ever. Yeah, I um I agree. I think um I'm interested to know about this. I guess the Rio experience for you because I think you competed in the Olympics. Then did you fly home and then flew back again for the Paralympics? Yeah, yeah. So it it was pretty hectic. I I left the Olympic Village a day or two after I'd finished competing. I had about two weeks back in Australia. Part of that was a training camp up in Brisbane with my para squad and then flew back into Rio for for the Paralympics. So it it was um, a full schedule. Like it's not always ideal, I guess, given that Rio is quite a a flight away. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, yeah, it was, it was the best sort of solution to, to being able to compete at my best. And then comparing that experience to Tokyo, um, what was that like where you were there for, I guess, quite a lengthy period of time to, to compete across that? How, how did that experience go? Yeah, I guess having the knowledge of Rio helped as well. Originally, I was planning on flying home um, in between the games, given that, it, you know, it's a shorter flight. 
same time zone basically um there was a lot more about being able to do the to- the double in tokyo that was a lot more appealing <laughs> um mm-hmm. but then you know th- we love a little bit of um uncertainty and things thrown into the mix so given <laughs> given covid that again changed plans but yeah i i ended up being away two two months pretty much in japan but the way that it was like laid out in the end was broken down really nicely. So I had different periods of different times with different people. So the environment was getting changed and I didn't feel too place or felt burnt out, which was really important. And that was what everyone was aware of and we were trying our best to make sure that didn't happen. So I basically went from the Olympic Village with the Olympic team to then an off-site Australian bubble um, where, you know, it's a different place, some different people, a different training venue, and then back into the Paralympic Village with the Paralympic team. And the way broken up things, you know, new and fresh and exciting. Yeah, still the same. The very first day that I got to see everyone inside Paralympic, I was just just as excited, if not more the first day I walked into the Olympic Village. So um, it was it was definitely a long process, but at the same time, um, yeah, very lucky that I had fantastic people from the AOC and PA helping me achieve and stay healthy and fit while I was over there that whole time. You got a pretty unique insight, obviously, competing in both the Olympics and the Paralympics. And we saw um, like through the female athlete project, we we're involved in the campaign with the equal prize money where we saw Scott Morrison then announced that Paralympians would get equal prize money for winning a medal. Have there been specific areas where you notice a significant difference between, between the two events and the preparation for the two events? Um, so it was incredible. I so didn't expect um, in terms of the, the medal prize money to come like that was just absolutely incredible um but outside of that though i mean sport different depending upon how they medal have different um setups and everything but for me i'm through through my sport and um you know i think i've been very well looked after and i don't i don't see too much um out on either other side of that but um yeah from my end there's obviously going to be differences but at the same time I'm very much in my own bubble all the time Mm. you know what else is happening everywhere else (laughs) yeah that makes sense every episode on the show I have a question from a six-year-old and from my grandma so I might play the question from six-year-old Frida first Hi, Millie. How often do you miss the ball completely? <laughs> Frida, that's the best question anyone has ever asked me. <laughs> and I, I even, even as an elite table tennis player, I can still miss the ball completely more often than I would like to share. <laughs> Amazing. She will be, Frida will be stoked with that answer, I think. <laughs> question from Granny. Hi, Millie. If you were to finish playing table tennis, would you feel satisfied with all of the incredible things you have achieved? She comes in with the good ones. She does. Well, <laughs> um, well, Granny, I, I, prior to Tokyo, I did, in fact, say to myself, I would be very content not... Um, just performing, being happy with how I performed. And if I didn't medal, I'm very content with my career. And if it was to end there and then, I I would be very content. So, um, yeah, I think I feel very privileged for the opportunities that I have, the people I've been able to meet. Um, obviously, I wish that could last a lifetime because I think being an greatest things um, the most enjoyable thing you can do. So, um, yeah, I'm, I, I, I still want to enjoy them though for a little bit longer. I'm not ready to, to give them up just yet, but if my career had to end today, I, I would 
happily sit here with a smile on my face and be stoked with what I've got to do. That's really cool. We also skipped over the silver medal in Tokyo. Um, so in the team's event, you guys took out silver. What was that experience like? Yeah, that that was a really um, – that feeling and that emotion that came to the match when I knew we had secured a, a medal was just – it has been a long, long time coming. I mean, I, I fell short of the bronze medal in Rio at my first Paralympic Games. Mm-hmm. And from then onwards, you know, I, that's been something I'd been searching for to add team um, and part of my career. But like Rio, I fell short. And Tokyo, I, like I really wanted it. But at the same time, like I said, I'd be content if I didn't have it. It actually almost felt like I could breathe again. Um, it was just mm. this like weight that came off my chest and I was just so excited. Um, the girls played incredible and like to have, to have that opportunity and be up on the podium at the end of Tokyo, a crazy five years up until that point. Plus, you know, it was nine, nine years in total of one up on the podium at a Paralympic wow. Games. Yeah, it was, it was just, yeah. It just, my chest felt like I could breathe. It was so, it was insane. And from that moment on, I just knew that I was going to enjoy the, like even more the the experience that we're going to have in Tokyo, whether it was a win or loss in the next one. It was just a, an exciting moment to know that it's been achieved and I get to go home with something that I've wanted. That's really, really special. Um, I'd also love to hear about, what you do, I guess, away from sports. So you're an ambassador with Standing Tall. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yep. So that that's um, back in my hometown, Hamilton, a mentoring program. Uh, so I love getting to go catching up with the kids back in Hamilton. And that's more so just, a, you know, a checking in, seeing how they're going, things school, things outside of school. And for me, I... I mean, I love talking. Um, one, <laughs> I I also love listening. Um, but I think for for country kids as well, it's such a good thing to be able to have someone um, just to to talk to and to listen. And and sometimes, you know, I also wish at that age I had someone as well outside of the family and friend group just to, mm. you know, sit have a hot chocolate with or you know go for a walk but just to bounce ideas off or any concerns and I think that's something really nice and the the relationships through all that the mentors and tees get to develop is is really nice so to be be able to be a part of that in a small way yeah that's really cool um what is next you've been to now three Paralympic Games and two Olympic Games What's next? <laughs> next is, uh, I mean, I'm just each week trying to make it through to Friday. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. I feel you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I mean, particularly after getting out of hotel quarantine, I'm really looking forward to some fresh air mm-hmm. coffee. And, um, I'm just going to take my time and sort of, you know, everything that's that's happened particularly over the last few months but also the last few years and um yes yeah, see where we go i would love to be getting back to hamilton to see my family but um in the minute i can i think yeah i'll be back there and for now yeah i'll just go pretty light sessions in the hall keep my fitness up and um yeah i mean birmingham now is just around the corner so we'll mm-hmm. see see how we're sitting but yeah if we if we look at for instance in 2024 I I don't know I'm not sure about it but but I I, after after the com games on Gold Coast I also thought that maybe that was going to be the end as well or even after Rio actually and I mean it's Mm. still five years later and I'm still here I wouldn't write myself off yet, but um, yeah, definitely looking forward to a little bit of downtime. <laughs> yeah, okay. I did. I was meant to ask earlier as well. What uh, what does a typical week of training look like as a table tennis player? Yeah, so in in the lead up, I mean, the whole five days a week, uh, close to hours each day, 
And then wow. I've got, yeah, I've got, um, so that would be broken up over two sessions in the day. Uh, I've got two gym sessions in at the VIS. I run twice Pilates every morning. And wow. in between that, I mean, the recovery process is as important as the actual physical side. So um, I, like most athletes, I love food. I love coffee. Mm-hmm. I love sleeping. So, <laughs> um, We're all the same, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I finish off every episode with three would you rather questions. So number one is would you rather win an Olympic or Paralympic gold medal? Oh, nah, that's fair. <laughs> the first one's always the really hard one. <laughs> You're like, oh, I got I to gotta go. Sorry. <laughs> What's that? Another COVID. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would, I would take either. Anyone okay. I could get my hands on. Yeah. All right. I usually don't let people get away with that, but I'll give you that one. Number two, would you rather play in a final against the world number one or against the table tennis robot? Or oh, the table tennis robot. The number one. Okay. All right. The, ro- the robot is, for anyone who hasn't seen the robot, I was watching it with producer Bailey before. It's quite impressive. Yeah. <laughs> the one that plays table tennis? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. You can't really win. Number three. Would you rather have, I've heard Joe Carlton fan, would you rather have a kick of the footy with Eddie Betts or a hit of tennis with Roger Federer? Oh, uh, I mean, I'm terrible at both, but it has to be AFL, yeah. Yeah, it's got to be Eddie. He's iconic. Where can people find you on Instagram? Um, Millie Tapper, nice and easy to remember. Perfect. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on today and having a chat. You've got an incredible story and I think – The way that you've been able to stay motivated and disciplined for such a long period of time is incredible. And I loved, I particularly loved that idea of just like noticing the small bits of evidence and the small improvements. I think, yeah, I think a lot of people can take something away from that. So I've absolutely loved having a chat. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me and helping me pass time in here. (laughs) (laughs) You're very welcome. Thanks so much for listening. If you got something out of this episode, I would absolutely love it if you could send it on to one person who you think might enjoy it. Otherwise, subscribe, give us a review and make sure you follow us on Instagram at The Female Athlete Project to stay up to date with podcast episodes, merch drops and of course, news and stories about epic female athletes.